Good morning, friends. Good to see you. So thankful to be together with you around the Word, um, worshiping our Lord together and enjoying your company, your fellowship. It's a good day. When you uh, get ready to go on a, a camping trip, what do you do? You, you prepare for it, right? You, you make your list, you, you gather everything you need for that camping trip to make it work. Uh, you have your food, you have uh, your children most of the time, and uh, you take everything with you, including them, and have your camping trip, right? When you're gonna take a test, right, as, as a student, you do the same. You prepare for the test. You, you figure out what's gonna be on the test. You study the details, and then you go take your test after you've prepared for that test. And, you know, same thing with coaches when they're trying to prepare their team for a big game. What do they do? They, they examine the strengths and weaknesses of their opponent, they examine the strengths and weaknesses of their own team, and then they prepare them down to the details so that they can have a successful game against that opponent. We're, we're a people that prepare for things. And Jesus, when he was getting ready to leave this planet, uh, he was preparing a group of young men uh, disciples who later became apostles uh, to be able to begin and sustain his church. And throughout his three-year ministry, he was preparing them to be successful disciples, successful apostles, successful leaders of this fledgling church. And this church would be existing in a chaotic world and these 12 young men needed to have this critical quality of ministry in place that our text today reveals. And so today we're gonna see another way in which Jesus was preparing his young group of men to lead this, this group of this church that was being planted. And of course, what Jesus was doing, as we'll see here in a second, is preparing them to be humble servants knowing that, that only through humble servanthood would the church survive. Only through humble servanthood would we see God's blessing and growth of his church. Without this strategic quality, the mission of the church, even the church itself would be in jeopardy. Can you imagine if the apostles hadn't learned how to be servant leaders? if they hadn't learned how to be humble servants? See, Jesus knew the critical nature of them learning this, and so he spent much time teaching about and discipling this particular quality into these 12 young men. I want you to know for certain, as you sit here today contemplating this story, that this Christ-like character quality remains crucial for the progress of the gospel around the world, particularly in Yakima. Christ and the health of his church um, require humble servanthood. Humble servanthood. Jesus, you know, described himself as gentle and humble in heart in Matthew 11. His life was a life of humility. We see this all over the Gospels, particularly in John 13, that we'll look at more closely in a second. 
But even in the epistles, the, those letters that were written by his apostles, uh, most of the ones who were around him on this particular day in Mark 9, but Paul also agrees with Jesus' prioritizing humble servanthood, knowing that without it, the church will fail. And of course, if the church fails, the gospel fails with it. And so that you can see the, the, the primary importance of getting a group of people committed to and understanding and applying what it means to be a humble servant. All right, so let's, let's look into this a bit. Uh, the text is Mark 9, verses 30 through 41. If you have a Bible, I want to ask you to turn there with me. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. Follow along, if you would, as I read. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, that is Jesus, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What an important text this is. If you desire to be faithful as a Christian, if you desire to see God use you in your family, at your place of work, at your school, in your neighborhood, the lesson that Jesus was trying to clearly communicate to his young band of disciples is just as critical for you as it was for them. It is through servant leadership that God uses his people to spread the gospel and to minister to his people. So I want to I look at three points that, that we can gain from this story. The first being the principle of humble servanthood. The principle of humble servanthood. We see this in verses 33 through 35. Let me remind you of the verses. And they came to Capernaum, and he was in the house. And he says, what were you talking about on the way? Just interested. What were you guys discussing? And they kept silent, which was always the strategy of someone who was caught in an embarrassing sin. They kept silent. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, or if you want to be great, you must be last of all and servant of all. Uh, this, is, this is the introduction that Jesus uses to teach them about humble servanthood. This was not the first 
lesson on humble servanthood that Jesus taught, and it would not be the last recall of John 13, the night before Jesus was crucified. It came up again for the same reason. But serving one another in a humble way is evidently high on God's priority list. Jesus called himself a servant. Paul called himself a servant. Almost every single letter that Paul writes, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Peter, James, and John, all the, the young men who were with Jesus on this day in Mark 9, called themselves servants of Jesus Christ, servants of his church. And they all wrote on the virtue of humble servanthood in their epistles. So evidently they did learn this lesson and evidently God used them in spite of this questionable beginning. I guess we could say that humble servanthood really is a hallmark of genuine Christianity. If you're truly a believer, this will be a mark on your life. You will be a humble servant. Now, we will all have different levels and different stages of this particular character quality, right? We won't, we won't have perfection in the matter immediately, but we will be growing with it. One reason that servanthood holds such a high place in the Christian life and that Jesus expects it in every believer's life is because truly serving others requires other character qualities to be in place. Humility, for example, leads that list. If you're going to be a humble servant, humility <laughs> is a requirement. A dependence on Christ is another one because our natural tendency is to not be a humble servant. And we'll also be called to do things that aren't easy to do as a humble servant. Also being others-oriented is a character quality that is in view here. It's something that requires selflessness. And so this is why Jesus wanted his apostles committed to serving one another before, they, before he left for heaven. Jesus knew his disciples were struggling with this selfishness that, that they displayed uh, in verse 35. Um, but this is, why, this is why Jesus was asking them, what were you guys talking about? He knew what they were talking about before he asked them the question. He knew completely what they were talking about, but he wanted to make his point. He wanted to introduce the topic. Uh, but this wasn't unique to them, was it? It's not as if none of us struggle with selfishness uh, or uh, lack the motivation to be humbly serving those around us. This seems to be a ubiquitous problem in the human race. This is something that we all struggle with. It's like we're born selfish. I mean, we've heard this before, haven't we? What's the first word that your kids learn? Mine, right? Yeah, mostly. Maybe sometimes mom or mama, but mostly it's mine is an early word that they use. J.C. Ryle picked up on this in, in terms of this, this common problem that we all possess. And he says, we're all born Pharisees. We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. We all naturally fancy that we deserve something better than we have. Pride is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns without being detected. It is a soul-ruining sin. It prevents repentance, keeps people from Christ, checks brotherly love, and it can even bear the garb of humility. So this isn't new to the human race. It, it wasn't the first time that they struggled with it, the apostles, and it, like I said earlier, it wasn't their last. But Jesus' gospel addresses this very issue of selfishness. Tony Marita said this, 
The gospel frees us from our addiction to ourselves. Did you know that you're addicted to yourself? We all are. We're born addicted. We're born addicts. We're addicted to self. Before Jesus saved us, we are really addicted to ourselves. We're not interested in serving, but being served. We're not interested in giving, but receiving. Uh, We're not interested in God unless he's there to give us something we want, right? This is how we're born. And we know this not only because of this story, but because we've lived with ourselves for a while, haven't we? We don't have to be told that we're selfish. We, we kind of know it intuitively. But in this story, we see that, that God knows this as well. He asks the question, Jesus does, in verse 33, what were you talking about on the way? And he asks this question because he knew what they were talking about. He, he knows our hearts. He not only knew that they were, what they were discussing, he knew every aspect of these young men's heart, which means he knows every aspect of your heart and my heart this morning, right where we sit. He knows exactly how committed each of us are to serving other people in our lives. He knows whether or not we are truly humble. He's not fooled by any of the tricks that we may have fooled others around us with. No, he is God and he is fully aware of our motives, our passions, our interests, our desires. He knows our hearts completely. And since God knows everything about us and knows how everything works through the Holy Spirit, he is continually and committed to transforming us who are his into his image. So that instead of being selfish, we'll be other oriented. Instead of doing nothing except something for ourselves, we'll be thinking about how to serve humbly serve others in our lives. And what does this require? But the elimination of pride. Pride is one of the greatest enemies of spiritual growth. I think if you've been a Christian for long, you realize this, you see the problem that pride presents you in your struggle to become like Jesus. Every time you turn around, something comes up that reveals the prideful natures that we have. It interrupts our sanctification repeatedly, but pride, as we can see here unfold, uh, is a significant problem. Let's look at what pride does here. First of all, look at verse 34. We see that it destroys relationships, destroys unity. But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another. Uh, Have you ever seen a humble argument between two people? Because it probably doesn't exist. There's always pride involved in arguing, especially when it's about who's the greatest in the room. And that's, what, of course, what was happening here. These 12 men were arguing with each other about who was the best, who was most likely to be on the throne next to Jesus, who would be called on to say the speech at the you know, final supper, the last supper, and so forth and so on. What a clear picture of dysfunctional relationships we have here. And uh, this particular problem within the church was close to Paul's heart as well. He knew it existed, which is one of the things he addresses in the book of Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 27, for example, he says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Unity. Something that doesn't happen when pride's in the room. Something that these 12 apostles were struggling with. 
something that Paul struggled with before he came to Christ. Next we see in verse 35 that pride actually undermines respect and honor. Pride undermines respect and honor. Verse 35, and he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, if anyone would be great, what's he? he must be last and the servant of all. And so we see that Jesus is saying, pride actually undermines your desire to be great. <laughs> it's, it's really a revolutionary thought. It's coming at it from the exact opposite side the world might think of this issue. The world tells us that Greatness is connected to ruling others, but Jesus said the exact opposite. It's, it's to serving others. The world tells us that we should receive honor because we deserve it. Jesus said that honor comes to those who are humble and realize they don't deserve it. He said honor comes to those who put others first instead of jostling to be first. Instead of arguing about who's the greatest, serve those as though they're greater than you. Sounds like Philippians. Pride's a funny thing, isn't it? It's actually a very serious thing. But pride is something that always blocks honor from those that seek it. When people manipulate and maneuver to gain honor, it undercuts the character of the person doing so, and everyone but the culprit sees it. When someone is truly honored, it comes via their humility. When you go about seeking honor, You'll always miss it and wonder why. Why don't these people recognize I'm great? What is the matter with you people? Can't you see how great I am? <laughs> uh, and of course, if that's our attitude, we'll never realize that most people can see right through the thin veneer of our character and see what actually motivates us, motivates our actions, our, our words and thoughts. On this occasion in, in Mark 9, Jesus' remarks were short but crystal clear and penetrating, weren't they? If you would be first, if you would be greatest, he must be last. You must be last of all and servant of all. You want to be great? Then try serving people. That's the route to greatness. You, you, you think that you're something? Try thinking of, your other, of other people more than you think of yourself. Philippians 2, 2 through 8 comes to mind. Turn, with me, turn there with me real quickly if you would. We, we read it earlier, but I want to, I want to point out a few things um, from this great book of Philippians that we studied a while back. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. That sounds like unity. Having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. That's unity. And it comes from humble servanthood. And then, and then he says, have this mind in you. In other words, have the mind of Christ in you. Act like Jesus. Be a servant, a humble servant of those around you like he was. Um, and instead of looking for ways that we've been offended by others, not recognizing our greatness, genuine believers ought to be looking for ways to serve fellow believers in a humble way, in a loving way. So our questions might be something like this. Is there any way that I can promote this person's happiness? Or, or any way I can improve on my kindness towards that person? That's a step in the right direction. It's a step towards humble servanthood. Next we see in verse 36 and 37 that pride rejects God. Did you know that? Every time you demonstrate pride, in any way, it's actually a means of rejecting God in your life. 
Look how Jesus does this. He took a child in verse 36 and 37. He took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking up him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not the one, well, receives the one who sent me. So the, the child in the house was an object lesson of this subject matter. Children are naturally humble, aren't they? I mean, have you ever met a proud child? Do they exist? There, there's, children are naturally humble. There, there's nothing to be proud about. They've accomplished nothing. They have no authority or power, but instead they're weak, vulnerable, dependent, needy, just like Jesus desires us to be. The lesson here is that our treatment and opinions of other believers is actually how we would treat and think of Jesus if he were physically present. If you would reject believers because they're not in a certain group or have a certain status, then you would reject Jesus for the same reasons. If you accept believers, on the other hand, then you would accept Jesus if you were here present. I was reading uh, David Platt's commentary on this particular passage, and he included um, what he calls the painful pride test in his commentary. And I thought this was valuable, so I'm going to copy it and let you look at it, just for kicks and giggles, as my wife would say. Um, let's see how this goes. Here's the painful pride test. Do I get upset if I'm not praised for my work? Do I long for the seat of honor in any group I'm in? Do I seek credit for what others have done? The, do titles pump me up? It's a doctor to you. <laughs> Excuse me. Or Mr. <laughs> Whatever your title is. Uh, is popularity crucial to my sense of self-worth? If you're not popular, do you struggle with self-worth? Am I a name dropper? Do I think I have something valuable to say about almost everything? Mm. Well, why wouldn't I? <laughs> right? Well, the... The author of Proverbs says this in chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 11, 2. So when you have a prideful heart, you'll naturally pursue the opposite of humble leadership, humble servanthood. When, when you have a prideful heart, you'll naturally pursue dominance and position to lord it over people. But, but Jesus teaches the simple godly solution to the chaos of pride. He teaches it right here. You know, pride brings chaos with it. What's the solution to that? Here it is. If anyone would be first, if you want to be great, he must be last of all and servant at all. This is how you solve the chaos of pride. Be humble. Serve people. Love people. Now, now, now note here, I think this is an important note, Jesus didn't say that greatness was wrong. He just redefined greatness. This is actually what greatness is. It's serving others, it's thinking of others first. We think that happiness only comes when others think a lot of us. And they serve us and make much of us. Jesus said you will only find lasting happiness and true greatness when you serve others, when you make much of them. 
He, he said the position we should try to obtain is the position of humble servanthood. That's what God values. That should be our aim. Secondly, let's look at the examples that we see here in the text of humble servanthood. As much as this argument that the apostles were having over who was the greatest disciple is astonishing to us, it wasn't an uncommon conversation in the first century Judaism. You'd be surprised to, to, to know that this was an acceptable conversation that Jews regularly had. <laughs> at, at, they would have it in church. Remember, James talks about this. If you're saying some people can sit up here and the rest of you have to sit back there, that's not good. And he had to say that's not good because they talked about it regularly. And this was common in first century Judaism. They would talk about it at mealtimes. They would talk about it at events, social events. They would talk about who's the greatest person in the room and like it was nothing to talk about. Matters of rank were very important to the Jews of Jesus' day. And we haven't come so far, have we, ourselves in the matter. Jesus' teaching, in other words, is pertinent to us. Our natural instinct is to dominate others, to place ourselves above others so we feel good about ourselves, so that we get our way socially. But Jesus' teaching in this passage is radically countercultural. He's saying exactly the opposite of what we naturally tend to. And he uses the example in verses 36 and 37 of a simple child, like I mentioned earlier. He did this to clarify this teaching on servanthood, humble servanthood. He took this tall, small child, put him in the middle of the group, and then before much could pass, he picked this child up in front of them all and snuggled with this child right in front of them, grown men. And he says, whoever receives one such child receives me. And he met, receives them like me, receives me, and receives him who sent me. He, he, Jesus was saying that his disciples must receive or accept as equals all people with open arms and love and affection, just like he was demonstrating to this child. There should be no thought of superiority or preference, but only simple love, respect, affection, care. This would be a sign of genuinely embracing Jesus. You want to know if you have embraced Jesus? Is this how you think of other people in your life? The way Jesus demonstrated his love and care for this little child? And I'm not talking about the people that you really like to hang out with. The people that you might embrace just like this at the drop of a hat. I'm talking about the people that you don't connect with, the people that are difficult to love, the people who are outcasts even in the church. That's how Jesus wants us to think about this. This is a perfect illustration because a child is never prominent. A child is never noteworthy. We have unprominent, unnoteworthy people all over the place in our lives, don't we? Do we treat them like this, like Jesus did? If you'll embrace those who are like children, like the least, like the humble, like the lowly, like the lepers, like the outcast, like the mentally impaired, like the disabled, like the poor, then you'll know you have truly embraced Christ. That's when you'll know. 
You want to know if you truly know Jesus? How well are you at accepting all others? Do we prefer some people over others in the body of Christ? And activists, some are more valuable than others? That, that cannot be how we are. We, we must be, as Jesus taught his disciples, as the Holy Spirit is teaching us now. We shouldn't base our interest in other people on their accomplishments, their social status, their wealth, or anything other than their spiritual family. We don't talk to children and say, well, now, how much money do you make a year? What are you driving? You know, those clothes are a little questionable. You know, no, that's not, kind of, that's not how we talk to children. No, that's why Jesus used this wonderful illustration. Um, this is important teaching of Jesus, and I think this particular teaching can make or break Sun Valley Church, make or break any local church. Look at the front of your bulletin, if you would, for a second. <clears throat> I want you to see if this is us. And as I told the first service, if this isn't us, let's just take a vote right now and throw it out. Get it out of our bulletin. At least we'll get rid of the guilt, right? <clears throat> That's worth something. Here we go. Listen, see if this is us. To all who are spiritually weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who are a stranger and want fellowship, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to whomever will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers her a welcome, offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Should we keep that or should we throw it out? What do you think? I think it's a good thing. That's my opinion. But if we can get a majority vote, we could throw it out if you'd like. Right? And like I said, it would at least alleviate guilt. Wouldn't have to look at that. Maybe it's in small enough font for the people over 45 can't see it. I don't know. <laughs> Friends, we declare as a church up front that this is how we will be. We will be humble servants. We will love people unconditionally. We will treat them like Jesus treated this child. If you'll but come into the door, we will love you, is what we say. We want you to be in our homes. We want you to be in our lives. We want to love you as Jesus loved this child. The first example that Jesus used was a simple child of humble servanthood. The second is a dying savior. At least this is what Mark presented. A dying savior, and Jesus also did. Look at verses 30 through 32. We're gonna jump back up and get that. You thought I skipped it, didn't you? All right, well, let's look at it. This is really the first example. But I wanted to end with this because of its power. They went from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching the disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, delivered by the Father, by the way, delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand it. Listen, friends, this was a very difficult lesson for his disciples to hear. Remember just last chapter, chapter 8, Peter confronted Jesus over this announcement and he said, that's never going to happen to you, never going to happen to the Messiah. What are you talking about? 
Come on, Jesus, straighten up. And he says it again here. What's his point? Humble servanthood. The God of the universe, the Messiah of Israel, humbled himself even unto death, Philippians 2, 8. A dying Savior, what an example of humble servanthood. Can you think of a better one? A dying God? The same conversation about who was superior came up again on the night Jesus was betrayed. After hearing this in-your-face correction, it comes up again in John 13. In the upper room, what was the, what was the occasion there? Everybody was too important to wash the other guy's feet. I mean, that guy's from the other side of the tracks in Galilee, for Pete's sake. I don't know where he's been walking. This is the kind of conversation they were having on the night Jesus was betrayed. So they didn't get it the first time, is my point. Jesus, the God of the universe, necessarily stooped down to his knee at the feet of these prideful disciples and washed the dirt off their sinful feet. Not to mention that he did the same for Judas, the one who would betray him, that he knew would betray him. Listen to what Jesus said about this demonstration of humble servanthood in John 13. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, ought, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should all do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Do you get it? Jesus asked his disciples. Do you understand? Let me ask you again. How do you think the church would have done if they hadn't learned this lesson? This lesson of humble servanthood. You know what the key verse of Mark is, right? The Gospel of Mark. It's Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Let me, let me read it to you. I think it's on the overhead. For even the Son of Man, it's another name for God of the universe, Jesus, the God-man, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's why God came. Humble servanthood. All Christians are called to live like this and embrace this attitude. You are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, Paul said to the Romans. And so, do we embrace this attitude? Do we welcome this kind of teaching? Do we pursue this kind of life? Where does your life demonstrate this kind of commitment? Where could you point to in your life to prove it to one another? To be a good Missourian, show me. Where do you see this in your life? Where can you point and say, humble servanthood, humble servanthood, of course a humble servant wouldn't do that, but thinking in your own mind, how would you defend yourself here? Can you come up with one thing, one piece of evidence 
that confirms to your heart that you are actually following Jesus in this matter? Oh, friends, this is so important. Do you want God to bless your family? I know you do. Do you want God to bless your church, your relationships with your neighbors? I know you do. This is a prerequisite. This is step one. Pursuing humble servanthood. Look at the application of this humble servanthood in verses 38 through 41. John said to him, this is the apostle John, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives up, whoever gives you a cup of cold drink or a cup of water to drink in my name uh, will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus' teaching on humble servanthood troubled the apostle John. He sat there and was thinking to himself about the argument that he was probably having with Peter and James, you know, that's where that argument centered, those three guys. Well, all three of us were on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think I was closer to him though when it happened than you were, Peter. So I think I'm probably more important than both you and James. You remember Peter and James, I mean, James and John asked Jesus to sit on his, one on his right, one on his left, and they had their mom ask the question. They were too embarrassed to do it. <laughs> hey, mom, could you do this as if that's less embarrassing? So John here is troubled with this teaching. And he's thinking a little, trying to deal with his guilt, and he wanted some justification for rejecting other believers. And John asked Jesus, how inclusive or how exclusive should we be? It's a fair question. In verse 38 and 40, we see the final point of this story, and it is John, John thought it was noble to stop these guys who weren't in the posse. And Jesus corrected him in a heartbeat. He says, don't stop him. What are you thinking? <laughs> Jesus corrected them. He corrected John. And, and what can we take away from this correction other than to think that pride is the, the thing behind exclusivity. The reason we think that we have the only right approach to God or the only right approach to doctrine or interpretation of Scripture is because we're prideful. John thought it was noble to stop someone from casting out a demon. Jesus corrected him. Do we think that our way is the only way? Do we think that our doctrine is the only possible answer? Do we think that the way we do church at Sun Valley is the only acceptable means of worship to God? And I want to say in this context that we randomly, as, as elders and pastors in this church, uh, don't decide what we're going to do on Sunday morning. It's not a random matter. Um, the reason we worship the way we do is because we think it has the best chance of transforming you joyfully into the image of Christ. That's why we do what we do here on Sunday morning. But the way we do church is not the only way to worship. There are other acceptable ways that God is glorified and others 
Christians are built up. There are many applications of this truth for us individually and us corporately. But we must understand that it's not only our way that's acceptable to Jesus on these matters. There are others who are living the Christian life, applying spiritual truth, interpreting scripture that might be different than ours that Jesus would say, hey, do not correct them. Let them live their Christian life. Let them worship. Let them follow me. Let's not be so quick to condemn. He is a Christian, after all, compelled by the presence of the Holy Spirit to do this. We see other examples of this in the Bible, don't we? This wasn't a unique problem to John. In Numbers 11, it tells a story of Joshua trying to stop the prophesying of Eldad and Medad. And he comes complaining to Moses. Moses, I tried to stop those two guys, they were prophesying. And Moses told Joshua, he goes, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all Israel would prophesy, was his answer. Let them prophesy for Pete's sake. No. Joshua wasn't concerned for Moses. These guys were getting in the way of Joshua's. You know, he was having some of his limelight stolen. Friends, we need to fight for unity in the body of Christ, both here in our local church, Sun Valley Church, and as a whole, the body of Christ. We must resist our natural tendency to mirror the world's style of exclusivity, narrowness, cliquishness. Our perspective isn't the only one that has merit according to Jesus. Pride is the source of this exclusivity and we must resist it. And finally, we see here, besides this point under the application of humble servanthood, pride causes exclusivity. What's the opposite of pride? Humility. What's it cause? Unity. Pride causes exclusivity and division. Humility causes unity. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, that group of people who belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. And I, when, when I first kind of started digging into this a little bit, I could hardly believe what I was reading. Jesus is teaching one of the most important spiritual lessons in all of Christianity, and he uses one of the most simple applications of servanthood, humble servanthood, a cup of water. That's how easy it is. It is extremely difficult to be humble, but extremely easy to demonstrate, isn't it? A cup of water. Jesus could have said all sorts of stuff. You're going to have to paddle on a pontoon boat over to Arian Jaya if you're going to show this. Uh, no. How about a cup of water to someone who's thirsty? How about a handshake to someone who's lonely? How, does someone, how about a smile from across the room, someone who's had a hard day? How about a simple text to someone that you know is hurting? That's a cup of water. Demonstrating the most significant 
aspect to Christian life. You don't have to memorize scripture. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You have to be able to offer a cup of water. Can you do that? Can you open the door for somebody? Can you park in a, in a spot that's further away and just blow up the whole parking lot with that? Park further away than closer. A simple thing like this. Oh, friends, and these kind of simple things. Now, I'm sure there'll be, there'll be rewards for paddling across the ocean in a pontoon boat to Erie and Jaya. But Jesus said, this will be rewarded. A cup of cold water will be rewarded. A handshake, a smile. That will by no means lose its reward. Oh. Have we done good to the weakest, the lowest, the smallest in our church? When was the last time you took extra care or time with anyone in that category? Just to give them a cup of water, to shake a hand, to let them know that they're in the room, that you recognize it? When we humbly serve others, it frees us from that slavery to self that we struggle with, that the gospel addresses. When we serve others, we're free to focus on and please Jesus. When we're humble servants, the gospel goes forward. Jesus is glorified. And we're blessed. And we, and we store up rewards. All good things. Pray with me. Father, we acknowledge that <clears throat> This is very difficult, but also Jesus clearly says it's very easy. Help us to focus on these things. Help us not to neglect them because it's so easy, that it's so basic. Father, I pray that you would remind us of the simplicity of humble servanthood, of humbly serving those around us, those sitting next to us, those sitting behind us and in front of us, those who live across the street, those who work with us at our jobs. Help us to be like Jesus, who um, set aside all the reasons he um, had to not be humble, in order to be humble, in order to be loving and kind and good to his people and to his creation. Father, grant us these things. Holy Spirit, remind us of these things. We thank you, Jesus, for, for providing them. Go with us now as we begin today, in the next few minutes, to apply these things, even in this room, before we leave. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.